Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on this podcast, we have honest and explicit conversations about pleasure, sex, joy, and connection. Come on over to PleasureMechanics.com, where you will find all of the resources we have generated for you since 2006, so you can experience more pleasure and joy on your own terms. Go to pleasuremechanics.com slash free to get enrolled in our free online course and get started with our best resources delivered straight to your box. On today's episode, we are joined by a brilliant thinker, therapist, social worker, culture worker, thought leader, who is going to talk with us about shame, belonging, and pleasure. We dive into shame with the full acknowledgement that we can only touch on so much within a half an hour or so episode. And so we invite you to continue the conversation with Rahim's brilliant three-part essay. There will be links in the show notes to this essay and to many other portals into his work. And you can go to pleasuremechanics.com slash shame for a complete roundup of shame resources. So please enjoy this conversation. Let it stir you and feel into what it brings up for you. And then continue the conversation using the links in the show notes or go to pleasuremechanics.com slash shame for a full roundup of resources. All right, onwards with a conversation about shame, pleasure, and belonging. Welcome to Speaking of Sex. Please introduce yourself and the work that you do in the world. Hi, my name is Raheem Thauer. My pronouns are he and him. I am a social worker and a psychotherapist. I also am a sessional lecturer. I teach at a couple of universities um, when I get gigs that work out. Um, I'm born and raised in Toronto, but the last couple of years through the pandemic, I've found myself breaking with routine a bit and continuing to work remotely and also focus on some writing projects. So I'm doing a bunch of things. Um, sometimes my friends joke that I'm, I'm a professional gay. <laughs> and I like that description because I, I do do a lot of queer things, um, whether it's therapy or teaching, it's all queer. <laughs> Well, and one of the things you do so beautifully is bring that queer wisdom to topics that impact all of us. And one of those topics is shame. And you recently published a three-part article about shame that blew my mind. Even after a lifetime where I've been, I've always called myself obsessed with this question of slaying shame since mm-hmm. I was a little child on the playground. And right in your article, you wrote that you're both obsessed with and exhausted by this topic, too. (laughs) So welcome to another hour of our lives delving into this really complex topic, but one that I can't think of a more universal experience um, and yet one that's so deeply personal. Mm -hmm. How do you start to think about this question of shame? How do you define it? How do you think of its function in the human system? And how do you approach it? Um, I think you approach it in a very uniquely uh, way that really embeds it in a social context for us. Can you just lead us right in? Yes, absolutely. Look, I think shame shows up in uh, most people's lives in some way, shape or form. And even when we try to avoid it 
or we try to not shame somebody else. You can't always control people's experience of shame. So first mm -hmm. I would say shame is a social emotion and it's not just an emotion. I think shame is also an experience. Mm -hmm. There is lots of subconscious exchange between people when someone experiences shame. Shame also can be experienced in the moment while conjuring up a lifetime of uh, rejection, punishment, fear, embarrassment, mm. and the like. So mm. to, talk, to talk about shame, you know, first I think we have to distinguish it from guilt, right? Guilt usually means like, guilt is a nice barometer that lets us know we've done something wrong or we've gone against our own moral code in a way. Um, and shame, I think about it in many different ways. Like it, it could be small shame where you feel discouraged or embarrassed, but overarching shame, the big shame, the capital S shame is about, um, you know, feeling inferior or feeling like you're not enough as a person, you know, so you could do something wrong. There could be a social misstep. You could experience rejection in a sexual context. All of those things are normal. And some people might be able to brush it off and others will feel inadequate and it'll bring up feelings of being deeply flawed. And that's one of the ways shame can operate and show up in our lives. Um, mm. One last thing I'll say about shame is that you know, because you mentioned you appreciating the social context. And so, you know, as queer people, we live in a world and, and me as, you know, as a racialized person, I live in a world that tells me from a very young age what is desirable, what kinds of things are celebrated. And you establish a hierarchy in your mind. And when you're reminded of not fitting in, I think those hierarchies get activated because you start to understand yourself through someone else's gaze or through your perception of how someone else might see you. So the work as an adult is to try to figure out, do they see me that way or is it in my head? Mm. Well, and that brings to mind that kind of internal schism where we can experience shame even when we know we haven't done anything wrong, when we're just being like kind of true to who we are, and yet we're in a culture that tells us that just by nature of being who we are, we are wrong. Um, and there's this wrestling with shame, I feel like that's this kind of um, struggle between who we want to be and who we allow ourselves to be. Mm -hmm. And I think often in the dialogues of shame and even how we've talked about it in our 400 plus episodes, we've often talked about these like searing moments of shame and the moments where you really burn in it. But one of the things in your essays that you really kind of took my breath away with was how shame can operate as almost just like an invisible boundary around our behaviors, our expressions, who we allow ourselves to be in different contexts. Uh, and by, by through that lens, I really, um, 
I want us all to have a lot of self-compassion as we go deeper into this topic, but like how deeply Mm -hmm. shame has impacted us and yet how many maybe pathways to release some of that grip there might be. Mm -hmm. Um, In preparing for this episode, I got totally overwhelmed and Charlotte pulled out this one paragraph from your essay and there'll be a ton of links in the show notes, by the way, folks, Um, you'll find essay, essay links and links to all of Raheem's work so we can continue this conversation. But one thing you wrote just so succinctly is, quote, the first step to processing shame and moving past it is to identify what activates it for you. Next, we need to evaluate whether the ways we defend against shame are actually helpful. Then we can continue to examine how the imprint of shame permeates our community on a larger scale and get ready to challenge ourselves where we're implicated. This is such a powerful paragraph. So let's dive into this first part of what do you mean by activating shame versus kind of like, you know, doing the work of like figuring where shame comes from? Like what is Mm -hmm. like the history of shame versus like the experience of it? Ah, okay. Well, um, I use the word activate intentionally instead of the word Mm -hmm. trigger because I think the word trigger is often connected to um language around trauma and being Mm -hmm. triggered being like you're you know a stress response is being triggered for you um and i don't like i wouldn't like i think basically everybody who has ptsd probably has some shame but not everybody who has shame has ptsd right Um, And we've all had different kinds of trauma, like overwhelming experiences where we didn't feel supported Mm -hmm. and we got negative messages about ourselves and perhaps the world. So Mm -hmm. I think the first step to processing shame is really identifying what activates it for you, you know? And so um, for some people, it is seeing... um, People, other people who are, are gender non-conforming or pushing the boundaries of gender. You might say, that feels uncomfortable for me or that makes me feel, I, I, it makes me feel um, a bit embarrassed. I feel uncertain about associating with these people. Uh, mm. I don't know if I want to see myself as being part of the same community. I think well, when a lot of people first come out, they do, in fact, distance themselves from what they see as the fringes of the community. And to me, Mm. that is both a necessary process Mm. and a function of shame, right? So when a person's ready, they have to be able to say, stepping out of the gender box, whether someone else is doing it or I'm doing it, it activates shame for me. Another common one is just being a sexual being. I think just about everybody grows up in a sex negative world. I, don't, I wouldn't pit any one culture against another. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to be a fully sexual person without doing some unlearning and without getting some support, you know? And so I think the sexual terrain of dating, talking about pleasure, being comfortable, being close to somebody continuing to be Mm. close to them after you orgasm (laughs) you know Mm. those are all activators potentially of shame now in in a general social world you might also find this you know in your workplace where you might say you know some people are really good at taking feedback other people receive feedback 
in a way that feels like criticism, right? So I don't know, mm -hmm. maybe your boss is being critical, maybe they are being unfair, but is there also a chance that something about this dynamic activates shame for you and makes it difficult to, to process or synthesize, metabolize? Oh, that is such a beautiful framework to start reflecting on, like how we influence one another and what is like activated, as you said, because it is mm -hmm. it's almost like a process that starts rolling. And how do we kind of get a, just a little bit of breath and space around that so we can start witnessing ourselves um, with self-compassion? There's so much compassion in your frameworks. I really appreciate that. Can you talk to us about this next step of how we defend ourselves against shame? Because this is where I just started melting into my chair and reflecting on my whole life again. Um, but how do we defend ourselves against shame? And how does maybe erotic energy and sexual activation sometimes um, bring things to the surface that we've defended against our whole lives? You know? Yeah. So <clears throat> I appreciate that question because... Um, there, there's multiple theories about how we process shame or what we do with it. And, you know, I, I should say that not all shame is going to be toxic or bad, right? Some mm. shame, there's going to be some experiences you have in your life and they kind of sit with you, but they taught you something about how to be a good human, how to participate in the world. So for example, mm. if somebody had like a, got like a homophobic tattoo on their on their back and a friend of theirs said you should know better that's terrible you know the friend shamed that person but it's not the worst thing <laughs> like maybe that needed to happen you know what i mean so shame helps it it reg it's one of the mechanisms that regulates social behavior in the same way that praise does but praise just doesn't mm. stick in the same way that shame does <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, so let's okay. think about it as a mechanism, <laughs> one of the mechanisms, one of the many mechanisms of socialization. Uh -huh. Yeah. Now, when, whether the shame is a useful form of socialization or it's toxic and makes us feel bad about who we are, brings up these feelings of inferiority, self devaluation, um, you know, we want to protect ourselves. So I just want to talk about the language of defenses because it's a very, mm -hmm. um, like it's a very psychodynamic term, right? To say defense mechanisms or defenses. And it's, mm. it is in popular psychology. So people know like denial is a defense, projection is a defense. But I just want to say that defenses aren't all bad. The purpose of them is just to put distance between a difficult feeling or emotional experience that feels overwhelming and your conscious self. So mm -hmm. the thing that you do to protect yourself or the the thing that you do to defend against shame, for example, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. is protective. And it's because if you were to just sit there and experience the shame, it might be too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I give that as a preface because the way we defend against shame isn't always helpful, right? So <laughs> that's why I want to say, you know, it's adaptive. Mm -hmm. Because it protects you, but it might not be nice. You might not end up doing nice things. So um, there's this uh, like classic book by uh, Dr. Nathanson uh, where he introduced this concept of the compass of shame. 
And the idea of the compass is it lets us know what we do when we experience shame. So here are the four main things he talks about. Do we punish or attack ourselves? That's the first one. The second one is punish or attack others. The third one is to withdraw, which is like to socially withdraw. Um, and the fourth one is to engage in something that's a shame avoidance strategy. All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Often all of the above, yeah. I want to take a minute um, and go into the protective nature of shame in an intergenerational lens. Yes. As a parent, I guess there's this question for me of... Um, if we see our child is expressing themselves in some way that will subject them to the very real possibility of violence, right? What are the adaptive behaviors that are not shame-based? Um, yes. Mm. Yeah. You have my mind blown a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, yeah. I, think, I think the question we can ask ourselves is, if I was my child um, and I was, uh, you know, from a developmental perspective, I'm, I'm at this age where I'm thinking about what uh, psychologist Eric Erickson said was a stage of industry versus inferiority, right? You might say, mm. how do I build industriousness in my child? Um, what, would the, what would that conversation have to look like? So it might be like, I love this outfit you've chosen, or that's really unique. Um, if kids at school were to ask you questions about why you're wearing this, mm -hmm. would you feel okay to respond to them? You don't have to respond right. to them, but in case something like that happens, you might also take another, you know, there's no one way to parent. So you might also say, okay, let my child go out in the world and see what happens because, you know, mm -hmm. there are generational differences. We can't predict what will happen in everyone's environment. Um, mm -hmm. And then when they come back, you know, you can, you could, provide a corrective experience where maybe they were shamed or made fun of in school and you let them know that they did a really brave thing and they can mm -hmm. continue being that person. If they want to not be that person for a little while, that's also okay, right? You can decide which end you want to provide the comfort around. Um, but mm -hmm. as long as you continue to be the safe base where they can come back to, um, then, you know, they trust you and they don't have to worry as much about, um, you know, having disappointed you or not being enough in the world in that way. Mm, that's really beautiful. And all of that is like self-parenting I want to do for myself too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Before we continue our conversation about moving through shame towards pleasure and belonging, I want to give a big thanks and shout out to our sponsors for this episode. You know, one of the best strategies to confront sexual shame is education. Joyfully exposing yourself to new ideas and strategies, new ways of thinking and approaching sexuality. And a great resource for this is our friends at Beducated.com. 
At Beducated, you will find a curated collection from a global pantheon of sex educators, including pleasure mechanics resources, but also from folks all around the world ready to show you their wisdom and insights and explorations into the wide world of sexual expression and pleasure. And through our partnership with Beducated, you can get an amazing deal on their yearly pass using the code PLEASURE. Just go to beducated.com and use the code PLEASURE. That's B-E-D-U-C-A-T-E-D, beducated.com, and get yourself beducated. Use the code PLEASURE for an amazing deal, 65% off their yearly pass, and expose yourself to new ideas and feel the shame melt away. Another great tool for confronting sexual shame is equipping yourself with pleasure tools and toys. There is something so shame busting about buying yourself objects that are solely exclusively devoted to your pleasure and sexual expression. And one tool we should all have by our bedside is lube. That's why we partnered with uberlube.com to share with you our favorite silicone lubricant. It is pure silicone with a touch of vitamin E, so it is body-friendly, hypoallergenic, condom-compatible, and you can use it anywhere you want a little more slip, slide, and glide. Go to uberlube.com and use the code PLEASURE for free shipping and 10% off your Uberlube order. That's uberlube, U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E, uberlube.com slash pleasure and get yourself a deal on our favorite silicone lube. Big thanks to our episode sponsors. You'll find links in the show notes. And now back to the interview about shame, pleasure, and belonging. Recently in our um, pleasure pod community, we had a conversation about shame and we talked about the overlapping nature of shame and how most of us don't experience kind of one form of shame, but how they sometimes cascade, right? So people talked about how their trauma led to slut shaming and that led to body shaming um, versus, you know, someone who's like purity culture led them to have a kink shame and then really limit how they express their gender, for example. Like mm-hmm. we have these overlapping stories. Um, so how do we start excavating and noticing and finding pathways forward when it's kind of for so many people, it feels like this this web that feels so hard to unravel? Mm. Well, I think, you know, when, I, uh, when we do our self-examination, I think we have to think about um, the ways in which shame creates double standards um, or leads us to compartmentalize some of our experiences. So for example, somebody might have a lot of shame around being kinky or around being attracted to the same or multiple genders, uh, or they might have shame about where they seek sex or the kind of sex they like, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And when they compartmentalize that, what they do is they get excited about the opportunity to do something that feels transgressive. They eroticize (laughs) the anxiety. And then once the experience is done, they retreat. And when they retreat, um, 
the, the one of the dangers is that they go back to a headspace of judging other people for doing those same things because they judge their alter ego for having done those things. There's like this kind of split that sometimes wow. happens. Wow. Wow. And it's so interesting how the erotic, because it's so private in so many of our cultures and it's kind of like insulated, it can become this, uh, both a refuge and an escape, but not integrated into like how we feel about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Whoa. <laughs> when the interviewer just goes, whoa. Um, well, so in what ways is that a portal to freedom, right? Like how do we use the erotic to yes. find these places of refuge where we can be ourselves and find community where maybe for the first time we can express ourselves more fully. Um, but then also honor the need to integrate it and maybe confront the places, yeah, that we're hiding within ourselves. Yeah. Wow. It's tough stuff, but I think yeah. we, we kind of have to start with thinking uh, with a mindset that if I want to do something, I want to express myself a certain way. If there is a kind of fantasy I have, um, if I have it, then I should just assume that it's okay. And if another person expresses it, uh, you know, a different fantasy, a different goal, a different way to be, a different expression, I should look at them and say, oh, wow, not that they're doing something right or wrong. I have to turn off the evaluative lens and think, oh, wow, mm. that's another way to be. Like, that's cool. Mm. And, then I, and then once I can say, that's cool, that's another way to be, the follow-up question is, what makes it difficult mm. for me to be like that person? Or what are, how have my life experiences been different that I haven't gravitated toward thinking about fantasies in that way or having those kinds of expressions? Now, the challenge with this, right, is that we do have some limits in our culture. Um, <laughs> and, and, and rightly so, you know. Um, I, I typically would not say to a, a, a therapy client who has, you know, um, violated somebody else or had sex with a minor, you know, I, I like, I wouldn't say, oh, that's an interesting fantasy. Like, there shouldn't be shame attached to that. I would want to create some empathy, sit with their shame. And I would try to be thinking about um, hmm. the roots of the desire that is um, actually harmful to someone else, right? So I'm not, I'm not yeah. in that way trying to undo the shame. I'm writing it a little bit uh, and trying to understand where that person's uh, behavior came from. Mm. Well, I'm thinking almost politically in some moments of protest, there's groups of people outside someone's house saying shame, shame, right? And I, I pay attention in those moments, like what are the appropriate uses of shame as pressure? Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So much here. I think a lot about this connection between sexuality and belonging. And I think as queer mm. people, right, there's a, for many of us, and I think I'm curious how this is changing intergenerationally, but there was a journey towards belonging kind of through the fire of shame, through a lot of self-process of like insisting on us being who we are despite the pressure against that. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we find that belonging, it can be such sweet splendor, you know, like <laughs> being on a dance floor, 
being in a group sex situation, um, being with someone for the first time who sees your body and touches you the way you've been craving like that, um, the bliss of that, right. Of that. And it often people use a word of like homecoming. Mm -hmm. Um, how does shame interact with our sense of social belonging and in the erotic way, like how do we, motivate ourselves like through the fires of eroticism to start allowing shame to burn you know mm. well i think as you so as you were talking chris i had a vision like i had a, a rolodex of just a few sexual experiences i've had which were truly like liberating where there was this intense connection i felt accepted for my whole mm. self um, I was, mm -hmm. and the key thing is, it's not just that they were accepting, but my shame, I could suspend it long enough to be present in the sensation, right? And to be present in yes. the, the experience of touch without thinking about, oh, I wonder if they're looking at my body and criticizing it, or, or I wonder if they notice how my body looks when I'm in this position. Mm -hmm. So I would say first it's a process, right? Um, and I think some of it has to happen through life experience. And some, some psychologists talk about this idea of recovering from shame and trauma by risking connection, right? So being mm -hmm. able to identify situations, contexts, and people where it's safe to actually risk connection. Because some of us, you know, like I might go on an online app and I might be super vulnerable and I might share a lot of photos with somebody and then be blocked. And if I yeah. am not prepared for that, that is not a great way. Like that's not a great context in which for, you know, for me to I both share photos and to risk connection. It might need to be in a different context, mm. in a different place, in a different uh, part of the journey of mm. meeting the person. Right. So. Um, I think first we have to identify what safe places and people are and then work on and practice being present in those moments and focus on pleasure more than performance, right? And some of that is letting go of expectations. Um, if anyone, I mean, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, like the concept of sensate focus, um, but sensate focus is really about uh, touching for your own interest and not in a selfish way, but it's about if you touch for your own interest, you don't have an expectation around someone else's physical response or physiological arousal. And if you just focus on your own interest and your own touch, you stay present. And if the other person does that, they also stay present. And then there's a really supportive and beautiful energetic feedback loop that can happen. Now, yes. one of the things I think we have to think about is, um, you know, you talked about belonging, right? And to establish belonging, I think we have to really uh, interrogate moments when we're critical of other people, critical of, mm. you know, whether or not they go to the gym, the products they buy, who they spend time with, how, like, what drugs and alcohol they use, what their relationship to their family is. Uh, you know, there's so many things you could be judgmental about. And I think every time we see ourselves being kind of judgmental or critical of someone else, even in the slightest way, 
in a way that we wouldn't say out loud where we we think oh that person that they're wearing a top that you know could stand to be a little looser you know we there's mm-hmm. no denying that we all have these funny dialogues in our mind but if we can interrogate that criticism and say ah that's a projection that has to do with my shame you know i'm worried about how money looks i'm worried about brands i wear i'm worried about uh, which spaces I choose to congregate in. If we could just have a bit wow. more awareness of that, I think that paves the way for belonging, right? And it starts to dismantle the rigidity of social hierarchy. I don't think we'll get rid of social hierarchy. Uh, you know, mm. you know, like, I don't think that that's a bit utopian. I don't know if that'll happen. But I think if we can break down the rigidity of social hierarchy by challenging our own criticism and these social boundaries and divisions, that can be a very helpful place to start. Yes. Yes. And we can start recognizing belonging can happen with and across differences, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have to leave parts of ourselves behind to experience belonging. I wanted to go into a phrase you used about um, within the experience of touch, within the experience of feeling pleasure, there's something about the presence of the moment that allows us to kind of forget and suspend. And I want to really emphasize this, that we don't have to get to a place of being shameless to experience pleasure. We don't have to get to a place of like fully loving our bodies to allow ourselves to be touched, right? We can carry these experiences and integrate them into our eroticism and then allow ourselves to slowly get curious about what is changeable, how we need to tend to the places that are just, you know, um, tender, tend to the tender. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't need to hide until we feel fixed, right? And sometimes I think within the mental health dialogue, people feel too broken to be loved. Ah, um, uh, yes. That's a common core belief, I think, that people develop about themselves uh, as a result of um, different kinds of trauma. You know, um, mm. I think lots of people whether they're gender non-conforming, queer, um, maybe they're they're racialized or, or or in particular black or indigenous, you receive strong messages from your culture about not mm-hmm. fitting in or needing to perform in a particular way to fit in, right? And so you mm-hmm. police your behavior. By doing that, you already have internalized something about yourself as being pathological because you're treating it with behavior modification, right? So I think there's um, like that, that's, that's a really difficult thing. So, you know, we begin to anticipate rejection in so many settings. And I've worked with clients who have all this social anxiety, which could be, you know, an example of withdrawal as a, as a defense against shame, right? Um, the anxiety is there to, to warn you, to protect you, to alert you. And we'll talk about a particular interaction they had in the past week or two. And we'll look at the evidence and say, how would you know, how did you know that, the, you know, this person wasn't into you or that they weren't enjoying the conversation? And sometimes people can come up with clear indicators and I would never gaslight that. But there's many, oppor- there's many um, instances where, that evidence isn't so black and white and clients are actually able to say, you know what, I think, I think I just got really in my head and then I shut down 
And then because I shut down, I thought I wasn't participating or I wasn't funny enough or I wasn't interesting enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I withdrew and then they stopped talking to me. And they're like, I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, if you stopped talking and <laughs> shut down, it makes sense that they went on to someone else. And also, yeah. even if they got bored of you, you know, there's no overarch. This is not evidence that on an overarching way that you are unlovable. It means that you ran out of steam. And you were at a party and it made sense that each of you move on, (laughs) you know, but it takes time to really think about those dynamics in your day to day life, because the anticipation of of rejection comes from a deep seated place. And that it takes it's really hard to unlearn. And I think it's one of the conditions of oppression to not know whether, you know, there, there are undertones of. Uh, rejection that have to do with not like that are not about preference, but are about something systemic, you know, for example, like I, you know, I might think, Hey, this person's not into me and that's fine. Not everybody has to be into me, but one of the conditions of being part of an oppressed group is, well, I can't help but wonder if part of it was because I'm a Brown person or part of it's because I'm a femme guy. And I can't force someone to like me, (laughs) you know, and I can't get clarification from them. Like, hey, is there any chance you don't like me for those reasons? That's just something you sit with, right? And that is like the how how oppression and internalized shame operate together. Yeah. And sometimes it's so, um, sometimes it's visible, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's like known to us, and sometimes it's very diffuse. Um, Right. And like, mm-hmm. I think when we look at how the body, the body status ladders operate and then how we poke at them all the time in our own minds, sometimes um, when we think about things like dating or opening up a marriage or um, going into a gender transition or any of these other big, tender swan dives mm-hmm. of vulnerability, what is some of the queer wisdom we can bring to ourselves in these moments of choosing to be vulnerable, choosing to be more authentic? Mm-hmm. Um, like what are some of the the tools that we can prepare ourselves with knowing we will confront shame, knowing we will be activated? Mm-hmm. Look, I think one of the things you already mentioned was having self-compassion, right? And mm. so if I'm feeling bad, my shame is activated, it's okay to spend the afternoon in bed, you know? Um, It's also reminding ourselves that um, if we've struggled for a long time with not fitting in or not being celebrated, um, we're doing a disservice to ourselves as adults to continue trying to make that happen, like trying to make ourselves fit into a mold, right? Mm. Um, and that's that's hard work. Wow. <laughs> so sometimes we battle shame by what I would call like, or what I would term counter identification. So if there's a group of people or a setting that really activates your shame, do the opposite. Be with people that are that don't do that. You know, one of the ways uh, I do that in my daily life in a small way is. I've kind of unfollowed or muted a lot of people who post gym selfies, for example, because I don't want Mm -hmm. to be angry with them for aspiring to look a certain way and achieving it. Um, I think that envy is like 
it can be poisonous in a way. Um, but I'm, I, I mean, I can't do anything about it. It's harder to do something about the envy, the shame. I'm like, if this is going to make me infer feel inferior and on the real, I don't even necessarily want that for my life. It makes sense to ex reduce my amount of the amount of exposure I have to things that make mm. me feel bad. Now, for lots of people, that means also reducing the amount of time they have with family of origin, for example, or containing it with boundaries and parameters. Um, yeah, sorry, were you going to say Can I ask, is there also, I'm wondering there as we curate um, kind of who we allow into our social feeds and our conversations, um, what is the importance of also, I've been calling it kind of my slut solidarity squad yes. um, of finding the friends where I can be unabashedly uh, open with and yes. their response is a hell yeah, girl, get it. Um, how do we start seeking that out? And like, what is the importance of actively squatting up around these things that are important for us to express, whatever that might be? Totally. I think finding your squad is so important, right? It, it, it does something for us that's quite unique. In, in therapy, we would call it meeting your self-object needs, meaning uh, okay. meeting other people that reflect who you are or reflect back to you representations of who you are. Um, and that's very important. It makes, it makes your sense of self more stable and it helps you create kind of a healthy self-esteem. And so that's very important. Mm. So yes, creating a squad, very good. And I think we have to ask ourselves, right? Like I'm in this situation, whether it's a bar or it's a party or it's this group of friends, do these people support me? And being around them, does it make me feel great about myself? Or does it make me feel anxious, like I'm second guessing? Uh, you know, if it's the latter, then maybe we need to make a move and find find another another space that fits a bit better. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a journey, but I think it's a journey worth going on. Mm-hmm. What I'm also seeing in that vision, like, right, there's a strategy deployment there of we can kind of choose how big and how vulnerable to be in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And as more of that's like an active choice, it doesn't have to become a shame based, but it's kind of more self-protective of like, I'm not going to share my full fabulous self in this context. I'm mm -hmm. going to move on, but I'm going to get through this night by you know, deploying certain strategies. It's interesting. Yes, exactly. Wow. And I think we have to also mm. see like, what is our defensive strategy? What is the thing we do to protect ourselves? And if it results in being really harsh to ourselves or really harsh to other people, mm. it's probably not, it's probably not working out super well, <laughs> you know, oops, mm. I burped. <laughs> <laughs> all the shame yeah. um i think one of the queer strategies over time has been humor and what we would call kind of camp and fabulosity mm -hmm. of like bringing things over the top to not not allow ourselves to be minimized yes yeah. um so look i'm gonna say something about that because that is the context in which you describe that like when you say camp it is so fabulous but that kind of grandiosity in an everyday romantic relationship or working relationship can be obnoxious. <laughs> so we have to mm -hmm. we have to be mindful of that, right? Like, am I mm -hmm. seeing myself as so superior 
as somebody who can never be wrong, as somebody who has all of the answers as a way to protect myself, because that's going to be, a, mm-hmm. that kind of grandiosity will be a barrier to authentic connections. Um, and you might become a CEO. Or they make the joke, yeah. You'll be a CEO, mm-hmm. but you won't Go have ahead. a friend in sight. So that's something to think about. Right, or like humor is like, I make the joke first so you don't get one up on me or, wow. Yes. Thank you for the work you do in the world. I mean, it's so amazing to have resources that are accessible. Like your three-part essay is a masterpiece. And going through it, like I read it many times in preparing for this. And each time I had a different moment of tenderness and care for myself. Um, So thank you for the work you do in the world. There'll be lots of links in the show notes. Um, We've talked a lot. There's a lot unsaid. Is there anything you want to bring to this conversation, a benediction or a blessing to leave folks with? Mm. Well, I think one thing I would say is, um, hmm, I think we not only need to be kind to ourselves, but we really need to think about what we do once we identify a complex emotion, because that's really hard. Mm. You know, when we say, Mm. oh, I figured it out. I'm feeling grief, sadness, guilt. (laughs) greed, envy, shame, disgust. Like these are all difficult things to to really metabolize. So we have to think about what it feels like to sit with it and when it's time to put it in a box and move forward and when it's time to revel in it for a little while and think about what it means for us, right? You can't, you can't uh, roll around in it all the time, but you also can't ignore it. So we really have to find that balance to honor our our experiences of these feelings that are they're difficult to talk about. They're painful even. Mm. Mm. But they're less painful together. And you know, just again with the the amazing resources you put out, I was experiencing some envy and jealousy recently. And I noticed on your YouTube page a talk about it and just being with your compassionate presence. And hearing that, like, what I was experiencing was within the range of normal, right? There's something we can just offer one another in these conversations that is so helpful and illuminating, but also, you know, I dare I use the word healing, mm-hmm. um, integrating, integrating. I felt more myself and like I belonged more to the human family through my time with you. Mm. So thank you so much. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Mm. Thank you for having me. Big thanks to Rahim for joining us in this conversation. You'll find a ton of links in the show notes and curated resources at pleasuremechanics.com slash shame. We will be back with you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from pleasuremechanics.com wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. <laughs>